In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. The Israelites were slowly making their way through the desert. And they had wanted to go through the land of Edom. Maybe you remember that story. And they asked permission to go through. And the Edomites had denied permission. And so the Israelites had to go the long way around. And this uh, really upset the Israelites. And as usual, when the Israelites got upset, you remember what they did? They went to Moses to complain. Though from God's point of view, they weren't complaining to Moses. They were complaining about him. <clears throat> and so let's just read verse 4 again. They traveled, uh, chapter 21 of Numbers, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the way... But the people grew impatient on the way. Verse 5, they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. What was the miserable food they detested? Manna. God's bread that he rained down miraculously for them. They detested this miserable food. Do you ever consider God's blessings miserable? <laughs> Do you? Have you ever considered one of God's blessings a curse? We all have. We all have. Now, I don't know if Moses had time to respond to the people or not, because the next verse just goes right into telling what God did. God sent venomous snakes among them, biting people who died very quickly. Does God have a short temper or what? I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on this because it's not the reason I want us to look at the story, but I can't read a story like this and wonder about God's methods. Can I? Can you? I can't claim to understand God completely, but over the years... I've come to realize that there are a number of logical reasons why God might work this way. And I'm not going to go into all of, them, all of them today, but it does help to remember a couple of things. First of all, it helps to remember that this was not the first time that the people had acted like this way, and this was not the first time that God had warned them. I often would get a warning from my parents once, and after that, wrath fell pretty quickly which is not a bad thing necessarily. But it also helps to remember that God loved every single person that died that day. And He loved them dearly. And because God is God, and because God does know the future, and because He does know each person's heart, I am convinced that no person died that day who had a better chance elsewhere. He did what was best, eternally speaking, for everybody. God always does that. I do believe that. 
In fact, I was listening to one of Dwight Nelson's sermon last week, and he was talking about Abraham entertaining the three, the three visitors. You remember that story? You remember where they were going? They were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy those cities. Does not sound like a merciful God, does it? But I liked the way that, that, that Dwight Nelson kind of offhandedly, really, described it. He said that the, the master surgeon had seen the cancer and had determined that for the sake of the rest of the body, that cancer had to go. Does that make sense? That made a lot of sense to me, the way that he put that. God knew the hearts of every person there. Those with true hearts that were in the city, what happened? He pulled them out first. He pulled them out first. And I thought, I like that way to describe it. So, no matter how severe God may sound when I read this story about Him sending poisonous snakes among the people, I remain convinced that God is not out of control. And that someday we will understand His methods better. But I, I don't want us to get stuck here today because, like I said, this isn't the reason I wanted to look at the story. But the people, in a panic, come running to Moses again. Remember what they said. You can read it. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you, against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And Moses said, you brought this on yourselves. Is that, no, that's not what he said, is it? What, is it? what did he say? So he prayed for the people. That's what it says he did. He prayed for the people. And then God told Moses to do something that might seem a little bit odd. He told him to go make a snake out of bronze put it on a pole, and lift it up. And everybody who was bitten by the snakes, they could look at that snake, and they would live. That's the story. So now, let your minds flash forward a few hundred years. And picture in your mind's eye a well-dressed man walking at night, kind of keeping to the shadows, maybe, as though he doesn't want to be seen. And he approaches another man who is sitting in a secluded place and he sits down beside him. Nicodemus was afraid that his reputation as a good upstanding Pharisee might be tarnished by being seen talking to Jesus. Because Jesus, as you will recall, pretty well alienated the Pharisees by some of the direct language that he used in talking to them, right? And yet... Nicodemus, like, like most of the Pharisees, if not all of them, I, I believe, had felt something stir inside of them when Jesus spoke to them. They felt or heard in their mind a small voice that convicted their heart that this man loved them. That this man cared for them. But... Most of the Pharisees had been able to quickly grind out that voice. Had quickly been able to silence that heart words that they were hearing. But fortunately, Nicodemus didn't do that. He decided to check out this teacher a little bit more. And Jesus, Jesus was patient with him. As cautious as he was being, 
as faithless as he was being, Jesus accepted him where he was at. Pharisee or not, skeptic or not, Jesus took Nicodemus where he's at. Isn't Jesus great? He knew Nicodemus's heart to be a true one. He knew that about Nicodemus, and he was patient with Nicodemus as he discovered what Jesus was all about. So that night, Jesus and Nicodemus had a conversation that not very many people could have followed. It was the kind of conversation that two people had to be very familiar with the subject in order to have that kind of a conversation. Anybody here just know nothing about computers? Have you ever listened to two computer whizzes? They speak a different language, don't they? They say things that you completely don't understand. That's the kind of conversation Nicodemus and Jesus had that night. They were both very familiar with their subject. And to us, it may seem like they skipped around and, and were making no sense in their conversation, but they understood what they were talking about. And in that conversation, Jesus makes a comment. In John chapter 3, verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. In the middle of this conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. So those of you that remember this story about the serpent, the snake, this bronze snake in the wilderness, have you ever wondered why a serpent, <clears throat> the very symbol of Satan in the Bible was used to represent Jesus? You ever wonder that? How could a snake represent Jesus? Strange stuff. And again, that is a subject for another time. I don't want to get into it deeply, but I believe it has something to do with the fact that Hebrews says he became sin for us. That's an incredibly deep study right there, which we don't have time to do for now. We'll save it for another time. Jesus knew that he would be lifted up on a cross for a purpose. What was that purpose? Do you know? Our salvation. Right. That's what we just learned from the, the text we just read. So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He knew that he had to be lifted up to give us eternal life. But there was another reason that Jesus was lifted up. There is another reason that Jesus was lifted up. And that's in John chapter 12, verse 32. John chapter 12, verse 32. And Jesus says this in the middle of a different context entirely. John chapter 12, verse 32. <clears throat> But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, listen, will draw all men to me. There was another purpose in Jesus being lifted up. And that is to draw us to him. 
Jesus' blood was required to fulfill the requirements of God's justice. Because the wages of sin is death. Atonement for that can only be brought by blood. Our death is the only way that we could pay for sins. Except the blood of Jesus could substitute for us. So that is true that Jesus' blood was required. But the cross itself and the cruelty that Jesus suffered was not required by the law. Do you ever think about that? Do you think that it was God's ideal plan that Jesus come and be rejected by the people? I highly doubt that. I think God's ideal plan was that Jesus would come and be accepted by the people. He would still have to die, but I had a professor in college, a religion professor, who suggested that it's very likely that Jesus could have come, been accepted by the priests, and died as a sacrifice on an altar the way that millions of lambs that had represented him had before. I can't think of any reason in the world that that couldn't be true. His blood was required. The cross itself and the cruelty he suffered was not a requirement of the law. But the way that Jesus died was designed to draw us to him. And it does that, doesn't it? Someone who would suffer so incredibly for us, that draws us to him. Now, of course, the Israelites, <clears throat> back when the snakes were biting them on that fateful day, they didn't understand all of that. They, they were before Christ. They didn't have a complete picture of what this all meant. All they knew was that if they looked at the snake hanging on the pole, they were saved. But they did have to look. They did have to look. Can you imagine anybody that day saying, forget it, I'm not going to look? It's too difficult, it's, uh, I don't believe it, it's crazy. Can you imagine anybody doing that? I, I mean, stranger things have happened. I suppose there are some people that said, oh, I won't. But uh, I can't imagine being in a hospital bed and somebody walks in and says, here, look at this and you're going to get better, and me say, it's not a hard thing to look. Who wouldn't look? But that night, as the people slipped into their tents and I suppose checked their bedding for snakes, I wonder about the thoughts that must have been rampaging through their minds that night. And in fact, I imagine little, a little boy, um, Chaim. It's a good Jewish name, right? I imagine little Chaim saying to his father, as his father was tying shut the, the, the door, the flap to the tent, Papa, could you leave a little hole in the door so that I can see the sanctuary? And the little boy's father didn't have to, didn't have to ask him why, because he knew why. The sanctuary in the middle of the Israelite camp was a nightlight in the desert. 
<clears throat> Papa, <clears throat> why does the sanctuary glow all night long? Well, son, it's because the priests go in there every night and they light the seven candlesticks and they burn all night long. Well, why do they do that, Papa? Because that's God's tent and He never sleeps. He takes care of us all the time. Papa, does He take care of us even when there's snakes? Good question. And I imagine he says, son, he saved us, didn't he? Even though we were wrong? You mean with the snake on the stick? Yes. Papa, when I looked at the snake on the stick, I couldn't stop looking at it. I know, son, I couldn't either. And Papa, when I look at the sanctuary, I can't stop looking at it either. I know, son. I can't either. Why, Papa? Why? And his father says, I'll explain it in detail tomorrow. But for night, tonight, let's just say that it's the same thing as the snake. It is the way that God is saving us. And the conversation that little Chaim and his father have the next day describing the sanctuary and God's plan for our salvation was a conversation that was passed down generation for generation to the Hebrews. And then on past Jesus into the time of the Christian church for several generations. They told this story. They told, they talked about the sanctuary and God's plan for our salvation. But over time... That story has been told less and less and less until it has been all but forgotten. And that is too bad. Because the sanctuary is the story of the way that God is saving us. It was taken to a new level in Jesus. That is true. But the ancient civil, the Israelite sanctuary still holds the keys to understanding how God is saving us. But, you know, God has a plan, right? And it's going to work whether I understand it or not, right? So why bother trying to figure it out? Is it really all that important if I understand it or not? Don't answer too quickly. Don't answer too quickly. Let me use an illustration um, in a, that I read in, in Roy Gaines' book called Altar Call. And if you're ever in for a deep read... Read the book Altar Call. But he uses an illustration of a, a, uh, an F-16 pilot named Scott O'Grady who was flying missions over Bosnia in the 90s. Scott O'Grady's F-16 was shot down over Bosnia and he ejected before the plane crashed and everybody on the ground saw him coming down in his parachute in Bosnia. And of course a manhunt was on to capture him. He had, Scott O'Grady had a radio, but it was a short-range radio. It wouldn't reach all the way back to his aircraft carrier. It would only reach another airplane flying overhead, and bad weather grounded the planes for several days while O'Grady avoided his pursuers. Finally, after a number of days, the weather cleared up enough, 
and an F-16 again flew over Bosnia, and Scott O'Grady radioed and got his wingman, who was very happy to hear him, by the way. And he told O'Grady, he marked O'Grady's position, and he told him to hang tight. He was coming back with some help. Well, <clears throat> word made it back to the Pentagon, lickety-split, and they put together a rescue plan to extract Scott O'Grady from Bosnia. His wingman flew over again and radioed the details of the plan to Scott O'Grady, told him when and where to be to meet a helicopter. A massive coordinated effort of planes and helicopters, a lot of manpower, went into Bosnia to rescue that one man. And at the precise time that they had agreed upon, a helicopter landed. O'Grady burst out of the trees and sprinted to the helicopter and dove in. And under heavy fire, the helicopter lifted off and they all made it out safely. Do you think that at any point... Scott O'Grady ever said, you know, whatever the plan, it's fine. I trust them. They're going to take care of it. I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. When your rescue is underway, you want to know details. You want to know at least as many details as is necessary to know what you are supposed to do as part of the rescue effort. Scott O'Grady had to show up and get on board. If he had not been there to get on board, the entire rescue operation would have failed, right? <clears throat> How hard was Scott O'Grady's part of the rescue plan? Considering all of the massive planning and planes and helicopters, how hard was his part? Almost zero, right? All he had to do was show up and get in the helicopter. That was it. But it was an incredibly crucial part of the rescue plan, wasn't it? God's rescue plan is no different. He is coordinating a rescue effort so huge it's mind-boggling. And I am sure that he has not given us all of the plans because... I think if he did, we wouldn't be able to even understand it. But he has given us enough of the plan so that we can show up and get on board. He's given us that much. And it's all wrapped up in the living parable of the sanctuary. It's all there. Now, it's true that he has expanded our understanding with part two, Jesus Christ. But that does not render invalid part one, because part two has simply built on the foundation of part one. Anyone who tries to understand the rescue plan using just one part or just the other part is going to be severely handicapped. God gave us all of it for a reason. Well, guess what? We also are in a war zone. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You know this verse, don't you? 
but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. As much as you may hate the war metaphor, and I know that there are a lot of people that really, really hate the war metaphor. As much as you may hate the war metaphor, we are still in the midst of a war. Like it or not, we are in the middle of a war and our lives are in question. You and I need help. And we need it every minute of every day. And we need to understand God's rescue plan because we have a helicopter to meet, so to speak. And that is what is so special about the nightlight in the desert. The ancient Israelite sanctuary. It details God's rescue plan. And what is God's rescue plan all about? It's about our salvation, right? It's about our salvation. But what does that mean? Is, is it about nothing more than God just wanting all of his ducks in a row? Is God sitting up there like a cosmic accountant saying, this isn't balancing and I want to make it work? You know, is it that God just wants perfect organization or is there more to it than that? Parents, if your children were separated from you by a kidnapper, would you rest until that was made right? Of course not. Why? Because you want all your ducks in a row? Because, well, it's supposed to be that way? No, it goes a lot deeper than that, doesn't it? Someone has separated you from the most precious relationships you have. And you're not going to rest until that relationship is restored, right? And it's the same with God. Someone has separated him from the people most precious to him. They have broken that relationship. And God isn't going to rest until it's put back together. The word is atonement. We often just think of the word atonement as related to maybe blood. But atonement is a lot more than that. And we don't have to know Latin or Greek or anything to understand the word. It's three English words put together. At, one, meant. Putting, thing, putting something back together. Restoring a broken relationship. Unity. You ever wonder why Jesus talks about unity so much? That's what this whole thing is about. Restoring a damaged relationship. And when we look at God's plan, which is detailed in the ancient sanctuary, we, frankly, we see an awful lot of confusing details, right? You've read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy before, right? That is some boring reading. Sorry. It can be. We see an awful lot of things about like what to sacrifice when, when to wash and what to wash and when and what to eat and so on, things like that. Confusing, irrelevant details, right? Irrelevant? No. Ladies, are details important in a relationship? Are details important in an intimate relationship? Of course they are. They are incredibly important, and God thinks so too. God did not throw frivolous details into his plan. Every detail has a purpose and has a meaning. He only included the important ones. 
And as we come to understand these details, I'm taking a class in this right now. Fascinating. As I come to understand these details, suddenly God's plan blossoms into the most beautiful picture of a God who will stop at absolutely nothing to restore this relationship that has been taken away from him. And the picture he chose to center this living plan on was his own home. Not just heaven in general, but his throne room in heaven. The most holy place in heaven. The op center of the universe. Psalms 11.4 The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. Jeremiah 17.12 A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. Hebrews makes it very clear that the sanctuary on earth is a model of what is in heaven. And the things that were going on earth, happening on earth, the rituals, are representations of what is going on in heaven. Relationships are not restored long distance, are they? Relationships are not restored long distance. Thousands of years ago, God established a temporary residence on planet earth so that he could live with us and begin restoring the relationship that we threw away back in the Garden of Eden. Back with a snake. And, and lest we're tempted to think, you know, <laughs> Garden of Eden, I wasn't there. I didn't have anything to do with that. Before thinking that, Think about how differently we live today. Every day we prove ourselves accomplices to original sin, don't we? Sure we do. Exodus 25.8 Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Planet Earth got a copy of the heavenly palace. That's That's cool. I think that's cool. Planet Earth got a copy of the heavenly palace. Now, it's true that it was only a shadow. It was just a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. And that means it had its limitations. But it was designed to give us a peek into the real sanctuary in heaven. That's what it was for. To give us a peek into heaven. And it's interesting to note that the tent that this sanctuary was in, in the desert, had a lot of features in common with the palace of the kings in earth, of earth. But it was also different. In the king's, it had the king's inner chamber, the most holy place it was called. It had a king's living room, the holy place it was called. And it had a courtyard where people gathered. It had a wall around it. It had a place of judgment. It had light and food and so on. And I'll describe some of these things in more detail later for those of you not familiar with the details of it. But a few vital things were conspicuously absent in this palace to show that this God was not to be compared with other gods or other kings. Other gods needed the support of their people. Did you know that in ancient traditions, well, actually, even today, people bring food offerings to their gods 
You watch the Hindus, for instance. They bring food offerings to their gods. Apparently, the gods need food to survive. In fact, people who are fearing annihilation would go to their gods and say, if you destroy us, who's going to feed you? Well, there was food in the sanctuary, bread on a table. But guess who ate the food? The priests did. This god supported his people. They didn't support him. The palace didn't have a throne. This palace didn't. It had the mercy seat, but even that wasn't really a seat. This god was not limited to this place. He was everywhere. The palace had light all night. Usually in palaces, the lights are turned off at night. This one, they were turned on. Because this king was watching over his people day and night. Details are important to relationships. Even these details mean something. In addition to the actual tent sanctuary, as part of this living illustration of the plan of salvation, God also established rituals. He established rituals for his people to follow. Not because there is any innate power in a ritual. That wasn't the point. But we, we do come to understand something of the meaning better by participating in rituals. And I'll get into that more later. Do we need to understand the details more? We established that already, right? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about how important this is. Hebrews 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, now this is an amazing verse to me. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts of death, that, or acts, of, acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Paul seems frustrated that his people, the Christian Hebrews, were stuck in the elementary teachings about Christ. Did you know that there are elementary teachings about Christ? That's a strange concept to me. Elementary teachings about Christ. If I were to come up with a list, if somebody said there are elementary teachings about Christ, list them, the things that Paul listed would not make my list. Would they? But apparently Paul considered them elementary. Did you know what Paul was laying a foundation for here? What was he about to talk about in the next chapters? Paul was about to introduce the deep, theological understandings to be found in the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. That's what the next chapters talk about. After making this statement about needing to become more mature in our understanding, he launches into the deep and difficult study of the sanctuary. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Hebrews is not in the Old Testament. Paul understood the deep, deep significance in the Israelite sanctuary as it relates to our salvation after the cross. Most Christian churches reject that. But I don't see how you can reject it, considering that Hebrews is in the New Testament. If you don't get anything else from what I was talking about today, please take this with you. The understanding of the ancient Israelite sanctuary combined with the sanctuary in heaven and Jesus Christ as our high priest 
is postgraduate study for people developing into mature, Christian maturity. The combination of the earthly sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, and Jesus Christ as our high priest is postgraduate study for people growing in spiritual maturity. But let's read this verse again. Hebrews 6 verse 1. Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Does elementary mean unimportant? Not at all. Not at all. It's vital, but it's only the beginning. And go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. The elementary things are foundational to what is deeper. So he's not saying they're unimportant. Of repentance, that of acts that lead to death. Is repentance important? It's foundational. And faith in God. Is faith in God important? It's critical, right? Instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection, dead, eternal judgment. The details of the ancient civil Israelite sanctuary and how they point to Jesus, the Father, the plan of salvation, these are the deeper subjects of study that Paul points us to. Those of you that have gone into higher education, do the concepts get easier to understand or more difficult? More difficult. Many people reject the, the idea of the sanctuary doctrine based on its complexity. As far as I'm concerned, the complexity is one of the things that makes it even more realistic to developing into Christian maturity. In this kind of study, we learn not only how we are saved, which is important, but we also learn about a God who loves us and what He is like. We learn who He is and what He is like. How important in a relationship is learning who someone is and what they're like? Is there anything more important in a relationship? Probably not. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look into some of these deeper things that are revealed in, by a deeper understanding of the sanctuary. We're going to learn about the power of prayer. You'll be amazed at what this doctrine opens up. We'll learn about the power of prayer. Fascinating, fascinating study. We're going to learn about what restoring relationships is about. Not just vertically between us and God, but horizontally between us and fellow human beings. We're going to learn about forgiveness and life transformation. Those two things are intricately linked. We're going to learn about grace and how in the world the Bible says that we can live under grace but be judged by our works. That doesn't make much sense. We'll learn about it. It's in the sanctuary. We will learn how God is not only separating us from sin, but He is also healing from, from sins, plural, but healing us from the disease of sin. Two very different things. And we will learn what it really means to be holy. And it has a whole lot less to do about being sinless than you may think. All this and more is beautifully tied up in the tapestry of the ancient Israelite sanctuary. And it is tied up with the bow of Jesus Christ. So don't miss the next few messages. They can absolutely change your life.
Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.